Well, anyways, uh, good to be with you again this morning. My name's Brand. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to get to join you for worship this Labor Day weekend. Uh, you really are my people if you are the non-camping people, because camping is the worst, right? <laughs> anyways, uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, uh, love to get to know you. Love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City uh, if you're new or visiting. Also, love to invite you into our uh, to our time together uh, studying God's Word this morning. Uh, next week, we're going to be starting our fall sermon series. Uh, we're going to be working our way basically all fall through the books of First and Second Thessalonians, which are letters written by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament uh, to a church in the city of Thessalonica, and and they're all about uh, what it looks like to have hope in the return of Jesus, the kind of hope that transforms the way we live now every day as we wait for his return. And so such encouraging books. Uh, really, I've been studying and prepping uh, the past couple of weeks to start that series, and I can't wait to show it to you. And so uh, love to do that with you next week. But this week, we're wrapping up our summer series that we've called Jesus on Every Page. And so we're wrapping this series up together this summer. And throughout the summer, what we've been doing is taking a look at a bunch of different passages throughout the Old Testament. And we've been highlighting how all of them aren't ultimately meant to just kind of teach us moral lessons about what we're supposed to be doing or not doing or who we're supposed to be like or not be like, but instead, all of them are meant to point us towards the person and the work of Jesus. We've seen throughout our series how the whole idea that the Bible is all about God and the gospel, that that's not something I came up with, that's not something some pastor or theologian came up with, but instead, that's what Jesus himself taught to in places like John 5 and Luke 24, where he teaches both the disciples and the religious leaders that, that the whole Bible, not just, not just what would become the New Testament, but the Old Testament scriptures, that they're all about him. And so at the heart of our series this summer has been uh, the, the desire to learn to read the Old Testament the way Jesus Jesus did, with him at the center of it, with the good news of the gospel, the thing that everything points towards. And so this morning we're going to do just that as we wrap up our series by taking a look at the chronological end of the Old Testament, um, and by taking a look at the closing chapter of the book of Nehemiah. Now, the book of Nehemiah, if you were with us a couple of years ago, we took a look through that book together. But Nehemiah tends to be a book that people go to when they either want to learn some uh, leadership principles or when their church is doing a building project. Because, uh, And while Nehemiah is indeed an amazing leader who does accomplish a really fantastic building project in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, uh, neither of those things really have anything to do with the point of the story at all. Um, see, in fact, the book of Nehemiah really isn't a book about Nehemiah at all. It's, it's not a story about a great leader who accomplishes an amazing building project. In fact, the whole point of the book of Nehemiah, like every other story, is that it's a story ultimately about God. What we see in the book of Nehemiah is that it's a story about a great God who is sovereign and who is faithful to keep his promises. And what you see happening throughout the book is that God uses Nehemiah to bring about the fulfillment of promises that he's made to his people to forgive them and redeem them and restore them and to once again cause them to be a people who, a community of people who live for his glory in his city. And God's people were in desperate need of forgiveness and redemption and restoration because what we saw last week is that instead of listening to God's repeated warnings through the minor prophets of like Hosea, which we studied last week, God's, God's people continued in their hard-hearted sin and idolatry and rebellion from God. And like he promised he would, God exiled his people. He kicked them out of the promised land. 
by allowing neighboring countries to conquer them and to carry them off into exile. And so the book of Nehemiah picks up about 150 years after Jerusalem's been conquered and destroyed. And while a few small waves of people have started to make their way back to the city of Jerusalem, it's largely still abandoned because the walls that surround the city are basically still piles of rubble. And in those days, if if your city had no walls, then you had no way to protect yourself, and so fundamentally, you didn't really have a city at all. And so as the book opens, we meet this guy named Nehemiah, and he's not even uh, actually in Jerusalem. In fact, he's serving as a cupbearer to the king in Persia, but his heart breaks when he receives this report from his brother about the walls of Jerusalem and how they continue to lay in piles of, of rubble more than a century after they'd been destroyed by the Babylonians and, and that God's people there who had returned to the city after all this time in exile were in great trouble and disgrace. And so his heart breaks because he knows that the dilapidated state of Jerusalem's walls and this, this really shameful existence and disgrace that God's people are living there are ultimately proclaiming a message of shame and disgrace about God. And so it becomes, because Nehemiah reveres God's name and he loves God's people, he knows he has to do something about it. And so after months of praying and planning and seeking God, Nehemiah risks everything and he asks this Persian king he's serving to completely reverse his entire foreign policy plan and to not only uh, let Nehemiah go to rebuild this city, but to fund and endorse the projects of Nehemiah's hometown rebuilding. And so miraculously he does, and so what you see is that with God's support, not just this king, Nehemiah heads back to Jerusalem and he rallies the people there to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that have laid in ruin for over a century. And he, he, he rallies them with this cry, not only to rebuild the walls, but to remove the shame and disgrace that their destruction is bringing on God's name. And so over the course of the first half of the book, and in spite of all kinds of opposition from guys like Tobiah and Sanballat, what we see is that that's exactly what they do. And in chapter 6, we read how amazingly after just 52 days, these walls and gates of Jerusalem, which had laid broken down and destroyed for almost 150 years, they'd finally been rebuilt. But the rebuilding doesn't stop there because Nehemiah's goal from the very beginning was never just about rebuilding some walls. It was always about rebuilding a community of people because it wasn't just the state of Jerusalem's walls that were meant to proclaim a a message about God's glory and his goodness. It was the attitudes and the actions of the people that lived within those walls. And so rebuilding the, the community of God into a people that reflects and reveals the glory of God, that's what the second half of Nehemiah is all about. And that rebuilding work begins with reestablishing God's word as the highest, ultimate priority in people's lives. And it leads them to confess their sin to God and to turn from their sin in repentance towards, towards holiness and to make a covenant or a promise with God that they'd walk in these renewed patterns of obedience and Towards him. And the whole story climaxes at the end of chapter 12 with this, this joyful worship celebration. God's people aren't just singing songs of praise, but they're really worshiping God. They're, they're sacrificially dedicating not just their city, but all they are and all they have back to God. And they're saying one with one another, all together, God, we exist for you. And this city and our lives and everything we have, it's about you, God. And I'll be honest with you, uh, if that's where the story ended, that would be great. 
It'd be really nice if it did. If it just kind of ended with like a good old, and they lived happily ever after, right? It'd be really nice if that's where the story ended. But it doesn't because the Bible's not a fairy tale and it's not a piece of propaganda. It's a true story. And the truth we come face to face with as both Nehemiah and the Old Testament come to a close in Nehemiah chapter 13, right, is that while God has once again proven himself to be sovereign and to be faithful to keep his promises, the people of God have again proven that they are completely, entirely, altogether unable to keep their own promises. See, by the end of the chapter, we're going to see that every single one of the promises they made to God and to one another in chapter 10 through 12, all of them have been broken, every last one of them. And in some cases, things are even worse than they were before Nehemiah got there in the first place. And so, honestly, the very end of, chapter of Nehemiah and the very end of the Old Testament chronologically, the end of the, the story that we have, it's a bit of a downer. But as we study the kind of sobering end to this story, what I want to show you is that, is that the bad news at the end of Nehemiah, the bad news at the end of the Old Testament as a whole, it's meant to leave you longing for the good news of the gospel. That's the whole point. You see, for all his godly faithfulness and steadfast perseverance and sacrificial leadership, Nehemiah, he leaves you longing for a better leader, just like all of the rest of them do. Leaves us longing not just for a temporary governor, but for a forever king, someone who actually has the power to transform the hearts of God's people, not just shape the exterior. You see, the Old Testament and Nehemiah chapter 13, they're meant to leave us longing for Jesus. And so with that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive into God's word together, see if we can't find Jesus on every page. Let's pray. Lord God, thanks so much for you and for our time together in your word this morning. As we wrap up our series together, taking a look at the Old Testament this summer, and as we see how uh, Nehemiah, like all the rest of the stories we've studied this summer, that they leave us, they, they point us towards you, they leave us longing for you. And we pray, Jesus, as we see you as the fulfillment of all that Nehemiah points to, we pray that our hearts might be full of gladness, that we look not forward to your coming, but back on the fact that you already came. And so might the good news of the gospel, as we have it in the rearview mirror, might it be good news to us this morning as we look forward to lives lived following you. And so we need you for all of that, and we pray, God, that for our good and for your glory, you'd help us to see Jesus on every page. We pray, amen. All right, well, like I mentioned, we're going to be this morning in Nehemiah chapter 13, uh, beginning in verse 4. It's a bit of a long passage this morning, so stick with me. Now, before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God, and he was closely associated with Tobiah. If you remember, he's, he's the bad guy from much earlier in the story. And he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain and new wine and olive oil prescribed by the Levites, the musicians, and the gatekeepers, as well as all the contributions for the priests. And while all that was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. This is Nehemiah talking here. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Now sometime later, I had asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem and here I learned about the evil thing that Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. 
And I was greatly displeased, and I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room, and I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back in them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. And I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and the musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. And so I rebuked the officials, and I asked them, why is the house of God neglected? And I called them together, and I stationed them at their posts. And all of Judah brought the tithes of grain, the new wine, and the olive oil into the storerooms. And I put Shelemiah the priest, and Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Pedaiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. And they were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites, Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. And in those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. And therefore I warned them again, selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. And I rebuked the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this wicked thing that you are doing in desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. And I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. And once or twice the merchants and the sellers of all goods and kinds spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and I said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I'll arrest you. And for that, from that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and to go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days I saw the men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod and Ammon and Moab, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. And I rebuked them and I called curses down on them and I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. That is serious right there, right? <laughs> and I made them take an oath in God's name, and I said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, and nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Joiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. He's the other bad guy from earlier in the book. And I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. And so I purified the priests and the Levites of, every foreign, uh, of everything foreign, and I assigned them duties, each to his own task. And I also made provisions for contributions of wood and designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. 
All right, so there's a lot going on in our passage. Let me see if I can help make sense of some of that, especially since we're kind of parachuting in to the very end of this book. But we find out in verse 6 that after 12 years of rebuilding the walls and the community in Jerusalem, Nehemiah had returned to his job in Persia as the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. And after some unknown amount of time, likely at least a couple of years, he asked the king for permission to go back to Jerusalem and to kind of check in on things, to see how things are going. And, and what Nehemiah finds when he gets back to the city must have felt like an absolute just punch in the gut. See, the walls of the city that he had helped rebuild were still standing, but that is about the only thing that has remained from his 12 years of rebuilding and revitalization efforts. Not only have God's people gone back on literally every single promise they made to God and to one another in chapter 10, but the very enemies that had spent the entire first half of the book mocking and ridiculing and threatening and opposing these very efforts have somehow now weaseled their way into the very highest levels of leadership and influence amongst God's people. Right, we read in verses 4 and 5 about how Tobiah, who we know from chapter 4, is an Ammonite and therefore should have been removed from the people of God with the rest of the Ammonites in Moab because they were spiritual, steadfast enemies of God, has instead of being removed, actually been given an office in the temple right, by none other than the high priest himself. And so right in the very outset of chapter 13, you know that things are not going well. Right? The, the corruption and the compromise amongst the people of God has already reached the deepest and highest levels in the city. To make matters worse, we read that the room that he was given was the room that was formerly used to receive and to store the people's tithes and offering. The key word there, formerly. Formerly. Right in chapter 10, the people had agreed to sacrificially give of their first fruits and their finances to support the work of the temple and the, and the worship of God in their city. The chapter ended with this resounding, unified promise from God's people that they would not neglect the house of the Lord. And yet, by the end of chapter 12, that is exactly what they're doing. Right? Just one chapter and a few years later, all of that has stopped. And here Nehemiah is in verse 11 asking a question he probably thought he would never have to ask. Why is the house of God being neglected? And we don't know when or why or how long it took for God's people to stop giving to God and his work and his worship and instead start giving God's things to Tobiah and to an, giving him an office in the very temple of God. But... But if, if you had to interview some of them, I have a feeling it would sound something like this. I, their, their reasoning would sound something like this. See, the house of God has neglected Nehemiah because we needed some things that Tobiah had. And we're providing for him so that he'll provide for us. You see, instead of trusting that God, who had repeatedly proven himself faithful and trustworthy, not only had what they need, but was worthy of worship even if he didn't, they'd gone running straight into the arms of God's enemies, looking for provision and security. See, but whatever the reason, they'd stopped giving. The, the Levites and the musicians who counted on that to literally feed and provide for themselves, right, they'd return to their own fields, we, we find. And because the Levites and the musicians were the ones who actually led and who orchestrated the, the worship services, what's inferred is that it's not just giving that had stopped, but that the very worship of God's people for God had ground to a halt. 
As you read the rest of the passage, you see that reality had these cascading effects on the community of God's people. And right, there's, there's no giving, and so there's no one to lead worship, and so people go right back to working on the Sabbath. Right In chapter 10, they had promised not only to keep the Sabbath, right, a day that they would dedicate completely to rest and to worship because it's this expression of their trust in God, Him being the one who provides for them. Right? But they also had promised not to do business with people who were working on the Sabbath because they knew that it was going to lead them down the wrong roads because every single time in history it had happened, it had done that. And here we are in chapter 13. Not only are they buying things from Tyrian merchants, they're working on the Sabbath themselves. They're treading the wine presses and bringing goods into the city for sale. And Nehemiah, right, again, he confronts them in verse 18. And he says, isn't this the exact thing, the very thing that God warned your ancestors would and did lead to their exile from here. And you're doing it again. He's just like, what are you doing? What is happening here? Have we, have we learned absolutely nothing from, all, from everything that happened? Have we learned nothing? See, but the bad news doesn't stop there. Not only have they stopped giving and replaced the worship of God with work, we read in verses 23 through 28 that they have gone right back to marrying people who don't worship God at all. It's gotten so bad that the grandson of the high priest, who apparently was also a priest himself, has married a daughter of their sworn spiritual enemy, Sanballat. They've skipped fraternizing with the enemy and jumped right back into bed with them, right? And so the icing on the top of all of this, like this terrible cake that Nehemiah comes back to, right, is that Nehemiah finds that many of the children of these interfaith marriages, they don't even speak the Hebrew language anymore, which is a problem because that's the language of the scriptures. And if you cannot even read God's word, then there is literally no chance that you are ever going to obey it. And so in less than 10 years, things have gone from bad to great and right back to downright terrible again. And Nehemiah comes back essentially just to a straight-up dumpster fire, right? A story that began with God's people in great trouble and shame has come full circle, and that's exactly where they are again. And just like it was the first time, it's completely of their own doing. And while situation in Jerusalem is bad, I do think there is a number of things we can, we can learn from the way Nehemiah responds to all of these problems. And the first is simply this, that, that Nehemiah doesn't give up on the people. And I don't know about you, but if I came back to like that level of a dumpster fire after 12 years of just like pouring my heart and life into that, right, I would have a real time, hard time not just like throwing in the towel, right? Just like, you know what, guys? Good luck. You're on your own. Good luck not getting smited, right? I'm out, right? Like you are on your own. Like I can't help you anymore. Right? But he doesn't, right? He loves God and he loves these people enough to enter into the mess again and to confront their sin and their rebellion and to call them back to faithfulness and to obedience to God. Right? And he does it like a loving father in Proverbs 3 who imitates God by disciplining the sons that he loves. So just spoiler alert, confronting sin is never fun. 
Never fun. I have never walked into a conversation where I've needed to graciously and lovingly confront a, a friend or a brother or sister in Christ who's, who is in sin and thought, I am so excited to have this conversation. This is going to be so much fun. I love it. Right? Like this, I just can barely contain myself. No, they, they all suck. They're all hard. None of them are fun. And the only reason that you do that is if you love people enough to enter into the awkwardness and the hurt and the pain of that. And Nehemiah does. He doesn't walk away. He doesn't throw in the towel. He doesn't just like give up on God's people. See, but the second thing that we see is that he also, he doesn't compromise on holiness either. Right? Three times in the passage we read about how he confronts and rebukes God's people in their sin. And in each of these cases, he takes actions to restore right worship and right obedience. He's not just concerned with people stopping doing the wrong things. He wants them to pursue holiness towards God. Similar to what Jesus himself would do some 400 years later in the temple courts, we see in verses 8 and 9, Nehemiah throws Tobiah's crap out of the temple room and he gives orders to purify and to restore it to its original purpose. In verse 11, he rebukes the officials for allowing the, the temple to be altogether neglected and he reinstates the people's giving and he calls the Levites and the musicians back so worship services can again resume. And in verse 17, he confronts the people about ignoring the Sabbath and he takes steps so that people can't buy and sell goods on the Sabbath. I love in verse 21, he, he tells these merchants who are kind of these outsiders who are coming in to, and he says to them, right, in verse 21, he says, if you come here again, I'm going to arrest you. Literally, the text says, I'm going to lay hands on you, right? It's like, Nehemiah's like, listen, you're not going to want to come back around here, okay? Right? We're going to have a problem, right? Verse 25, he, he rebukes the fathers who allowed their sons and daughters to marry people who didn't worship God, and he, he makes them make an oath, a promise not to do it again, and he throws out of the priesthood this dude that mar that's married their enemy, Sanballat's daughter. Right? He's serious about the people of God being set apart, being holy, being purified so that they could worship God and so that they could reveal him to the world as they were always meant to do. You see, he's not just trying to get after people who are doing the wrong things. He's taking sin seriously, but he's also taking purity seriously and holiness. And there's so much that we can learn from that. Because it's so easy for you and I to, to treat our sin like it's just not really that big of a deal. Right? Like it's just a mistake that, yeah, we should learn from that and try not to do that again. If we just, you know, just like give it your best effort and that's fine. And right, just like it's just not that big a deal. You see, but Nehemiah, he rightly describes the people's sin not as mistakes, but as evil and as wickedness. He takes it seriously because God takes it seriously. But even as you look at all of Nehemiah's zealous actions and his heart for God's glory and his desire to purify the people so that they might worship God rightly, what you, what you pretty quickly realize is that the third thing that we can take away from the way he responds is this. He doesn't actually have any power to change things. Right? He doesn't actually have any power to bring about any real and lasting change. He beats people up, he rips out their hair as this public act of shaming to them, and he forces people who'd married their children to foreigners to promise not to do it again, but I think you all know how that's going to go, right? It's like forcing a kid to say that they're sorry, right? And the words are there, but the heart is obviously not. 
It's only a matter of time before things go right back to the way that they were. And that's the point. You see, over and over and over and over in the the Old Testament, we're given these figures, guys like David, guys like Moses, guys like Elijah, guys like Nehemiah at the very end. And there's these glimpses of the renewing, restoring work that God wants to do in his people, and yet all of them repeatedly over and over and over again, they're not enough. Like I mentioned earlier, the book of Nehemiah is the chronological end of the Old Testament. At the end of the book, what we're left with is the harsh truth that God's people cannot obey him. They just, they cannot do it. After every, after all the leaders, after all of the help, after all of the restoration, they just can't do it. See, for all his godly leadership, for all his faithful shepherding, for all his sacrificial work to revitalize this city and to bring glory to God's name, Nehemiah is not enough. He's not able to break this endless pattern of rescue and rebellion we see reiterated in the story of the Israelites in chapter 9 of the book. You see, Nehemiah, he leaves us longing for a better leader he leaves you longing for a, not just a temporary governor in Jerusalem who can, can enact some meaningful and yet short-term changes. See, he leaves you longing for an eternal king who can actually transform people's hearts from the inside out. And what you and I remember and celebrate every week when we gather for worship together is that in Jesus Right, the one that Nehemiah leaves us longing for came. That he came. The one that he leaves us longing for has finally come. See, one who doesn't threaten physical abuse to people if they don't obey, but one who is instead what's physically abused in your place. And one who doesn't just chase sinners away in anger, but instead chases after them in love. One who doesn't just curse us when we sin, but who was in fact cursed for us on a tree. And so that you and I might receive the blessings that he that he deserved, one who doesn't just sacrificially give up a portion of his life, a, a season and, and a decade even, but one whose body and was broken and whose blood was poured out completely for you and me. One who doesn't just tell us we need to obey, but one who purifies our hearts and who gives us his very spirit so that we might have the power and the motivation we actually need to do it. You see, the reason why the message of the gospel and the coming of Christ is such good news is because at the end of the Old Testament and the end of Nehemiah, what you are left so brutally aware of is that you are desperately in need of a Savior. That you cannot save yourself And we celebrate each week is that in Jesus, that Savior's come, the the one God had promised all the way back in Genesis 3 who would one day defeat Satan and sin and death altogether, the one God had promised in Ezekiel 36 who would remove our hard hearts of stone and give us new soft hearts that would be the means by which God would put his spirit in us and would move us and motivate us towards obedience. You see, I'm convinced that one of the primary reasons why the gospel often feels like old, boring information instead of the good news that it really is, is because we have gotten forgotten how much we need saving. 
it's so easy to feel like we're doing okay. Like we're just like, yeah, we made a few mistakes, but like, you know, we're kind of heading the right direction. And like we got like we just like we're doing all right, and all we really need is like for God to like give us a little boost over the edge. And yet the resounding message of the entire Old Testament is that you are holy entirely in every way unable to obey him. You cannot do it. You see, throughout the book, and again here in this passage, Nehemiah prays that he asks God to remember him and to remember all that he's done. Here's the deal, though. If you and I try to stand before God and ask him to remember all the good things that you have done, the only thing that is going to happen is that you will be utterly crushed by the weight of all of the stuff you have done wrong, not the stuff you've done right. There is no amount of good that you can do to outweigh all your sin and rebellion against God. And so the good news of the gospel is not that God will remember what you have done, but instead that he invites us to call out to him, not God, not remember me, but instead God, remember Jesus. Remember him. Remember all that he has done for me. All that I could never do for myself, he's done on my behalf. You see, it's the good news of the gospel that we remember and celebrate every week when we take communion together. We're reminding ourselves that God himself sacrificed his own body and shed his blood for our good so that he might pay the penalty for our sins, so that you and I might be forgiven and cleansed and adopted and loved and renewed. And so communion doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it doesn't like change your status with him in some way, shape, or form. But what it does is the chance, it's an opportunity for us to remember Jesus. To remember all that he has done for us that we could never do for ourselves. And so as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song this morning, if you've put your trust in Jesus to be your savior and to be your king, to be the true and better Nehemiah that he, Nehemiah leaves us longing for, then whenever you're ready, I want to encourage you, go back and take communion. There's two tables. There's one on the left and on the right, and you can dip the bread in the juice as a kind of reminder of Jesus' body and blood which were shed for you. But if you're here this morning and you're still figuring out who Jesus is and what it means to trust and to follow him and if surrendering to him as king and trusting him as savior is even something that you're ready for this morning, I just, I'm so glad that you're here, but I want to encourage you to hold off on taking communion. Because God is not after going through the motions and religious rituals. He's, he's after a heart that trusts him to be for you what you cannot be for yourself. And so instead of coming to the communion table, I'd encourage you this morning, come to Jesus. Receive his gracious sacrifice on your behalf. Let him renew and restore. Let him rebuild your life. As we close, I just want to leave you with this. See, while, while Nehemiah and the Old Testament as a whole, they kind of end on this downer. Right? They end on this this note of just utter dependence and need and desperation, the Bible as a whole does not end that way. 
In Revelation chapter 21, it reads this way. John has a vision of this renewed city and a new Jerusalem. He says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne room saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he'll dwell with them, and they'll be his people. And God himself will be with them, and he'll be their God, and he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there'll be no more death, and no more mourning, and no more crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away for he who was seated on the throne he said I am making everything new you see one day sin will be done with and God will dwell with his people in a brand new city and because God has proven himself faithful to keep his promises over and over and over again you can be sure He's going to keep that one. And so until then, the invitation, right, is not that you and I might just try harder and do better, but that we might remember Jesus. That we might respond to God's abundant grace by giving ourselves back to him in worship, by striving in hope and in faith with, to live lives that are characterized by ongoing repentance and faith so that God might be glorified in us and so that others might come to know and to love and to follow him as his people live for his glory as we await his glorious return. Let's pray. Lord God, we're so thankful for you, and we're so grateful as we again see in your word this morning that Nehemiah isn't just, just full of lessons about leadership or about the best ways to go about a building campaign, but instead it is a resounding proclamation that we are so desperately in need of you, that we need a Savior who can transform us, not from the outside, but who can transform our hearts and cause us to be changed from the inside out. And so Jesus, we just come just proclaiming our dependence on you, the only one who can do it, and also rejoicing in the fact that you've come so that you might indeed do it in us. And so we pray, Lord God, might you fill us with a love for you that comes from seeing you as the Savior we so desperately need. And might it fill us with a longing to live for your glory so that you might be worshipped in us and through us, we pray. Amen.